Hi folks, producer Matt here. Before we start again, unfortunately on this recording we had a bit of an issue with Tim's mic, so we've used a backup recording. You will be glad to hear though that we've used some of the money from our generous patrons to invest in um, some better audio equipment. So great quality podcasting sonic experience coming your way very soon. So do bear with us and um, hope you enjoy the show. Thanks a lot. Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about counterculture, dance, music and politics. Uh, I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as always with Tim Lawrence. Hi, Jeremy. And today, this is going to be the third in our little micro-series within a series about the shift from Motown to South Soul within kind of soul-oriented dance music and seeing that as a way of understanding and thinking about the shift from uh, Fordism to post-Fordism. Uh, as the, and these are terms, as we keep saying, which are used by sort of economists, social historians, so trying to understand some big changes in the way that capitalist societies were organised between, say, the 60s and the end of the 80s. We, as we said before, I think, you know, when we first thought about addressing this theme, we thought it would be like half of one episode, and it's sort of expanded and expanded. But we think it's really useful because... Um, these are really useful concepts for understanding you know, the broad shape of historical change during these decades and really leading up to the present. So uh, we're not making any, any apology for it. And I promise this is the most musically entertaining account of the shift from Fordism to post-Fordism <laughs> you're going to get anywhere ever. It's the only account. It's the only musically entertaining so account. Best and the worst so far. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. All right, so we're going to talk about some more aspects, really, of what's going on between 1973 and 1975 in particular in terms of this shift. So we sort of talked about what was going on 70 to 72 last time. And then 73 to 75 is really this crucial period. Like in Britain, it's the period leading up to the Labour government in 1975 uh, agreeing with the International Monetary Fund to a load of public spending cuts. And that's really the first time that a a so-called developed country had implemented what would come to be known as a structural readjustment plan imposed upon it by the International Monetary Fund. That's sort of 1975. What's What's happening in the period leading up to that? Well, Uh, One thing that historians often say is really important uh, in 1973 is the so-called oil crisis or the oil price shock. So, Tim, what was that about? Yeah, well, um, I mean, just kind of in terms of the geopolitical aspects of the crisis, uh, it starts in the autumn of 73, and it's when uh, the kind of organisation of uh, Arab-producing countries led by Saudi Arabia introduced an an oil embargo on on nations that, uh, uh, sorry, that they thought were supporting Israel uh, during uh, the Yom Kippur War, which I think was 1967. And uh, United States and the United Kingdom were nations that were targeted, it expanded after a while. The embargo ended, uh, it was kind of just six months later or something, so you know, I don't know if that's a short amount of time or a long amount of time, but the price of oil uh, trebled during, um, at least trebled during that price, and it led to significant inflation. This matched with, with wider changes in the economy, which we've been discussing uh, in particular in the last two episodes, just um, effectively also uh, prompted, you know, led resulted in a in a recession, um, and we've become very used. To talking about recessions because they sort of they, you know we we perceive them to be intermittent within kind of the Western capitalist economy or the global capitalist economy, but this was the first recession since uh, this, the Second World War and this period of, of pretty uh, high growth for much of that period. So it was a, described as an oil shock, but it was also a shock to the economies, and it just kind of seemed to um, require a rethink of the way that um, economies were being structured, coincided with the declining profitability, of course, but also during the first couple of years of the 1970s, wages had also been 
rising significantly. So there's this kind of, it, it created this scenario uh, in which corporations having sort of supported wage rises, uh, partly as a, as a kind of compromise to the demands of the countercultural movement in as much as it, in so much as it was a coherent movement, corporations had made compromises to the workforce for, also for that and other reasons. But uh, following or uh, around this time and afterwards, they sort of began to see a real need to kind of clamp down to cure this problem of, of inflation, if you like, that was linked to the oil crisis. Um, and it just w- resulted in this change. It was like, um, I think it was a couple of years earlier, Nixon had, had made this sort of un- improbable declaration that we're all Keynesians now uh, in terms of a kind of an approach to the role that the state should play in kind of managing the economy, uh, in particular during periods when the economy needed the state to kind of intervene to, to support it, its growth and state or stability. But it was the oil, it was partly the, this kind of oil crisis, I think, that uh, kind of disrupted, you know, through, became a major disruption to kind of, you know, standard economic thinking and kind of partly laid the way for this kind of more sweeping movement on the part of the corporations that in turn kind of, uh, as far as I'm aware, was one of the prefaces to the rollout of more overtly neoliberal policies. But, um, you know, what's your understanding of the, the role of the oil crisis, Jen? Well, that's a really interesting question because it was already clear by the early 70s, I think, that the kind of post-war economic settlement internationally and in countries like the United States was breaking down. So Nixon, what year did Nixon take the dollar off the gold standard and sort of throw out Bretton Woods? I think that was 69 or 70, I think. It allowed the dollar to float basically allowing speculation in the currency markets which had basically been prohibited under the set of rules adopted by the capitalist economies after world war ii there'd been this regime put in place under after world war ii which had really limited the power of speculators limited financial capital's ability to to set the terms for wider economic policy and that all comes under pressure and that all kind of starts to come unstuck for various reasons, some of which we talked about last time. And it results in a sort of pressure on what's taught, what's referred to as, as you said, Tim, on, on the sort of the Keynesian consensus. That's named after the, the great British economist John Maynard Keynes, the most important economist of the 20th century. And he's largely credited with kind of persuade, helping to persuade governments of industrial eco- capitalist economies that they needed to, instead of just helping capitalist firms always be as profitable as possible by any means necessary, instead they had to maintain what economists call aggregate demand. In other words, basically make sure that enough consumers, meaning enough workers, had enough money in their pocket to spend. Otherwise, there'll be no one to buy the stuff factories were producing. And so the, this led to a whole way of thinking about economics, according to which especially in times of recession, what governments ought to do is not cut back on public spending and, and allow corporations to cut wages. What they should do instead is um, they should borrow money, they should spend that money to maintain high levels of employment and high wages. If they do that, then the workers who are doing those jobs will have money to spend, so they'll buy the stuff that's being produced, and that will stop companies going out of business and stop unemployment going up. And sooner or later, if you, as long as you, in fact, as long as you have some inflation, uh, the the real value of government debt will go down, and you can pay it off. So it's a system which is desi- which is based on the idea that you will have sort of slowly, continually rising prices, slowly, continually rising wages, and governments will work to manage all that. All this starts to fall apart for for reasons you know everybody you know still disagrees about, but certainly the oil shock marked a sort of. Um, it marks a really symbolic turning point. I, th- I think. I think a lot of historians today, economic historians, would say that its its importance is massively was that massively kind of overstated at the time, because at the time it seemed to be this enormous thing that basically what had happened was the oil producing countries, especially in the Middle East, after the the relative success of the embargo of Israel, had realised that basically they could get away with tripling or quadrupling the price of oil that they they had now such a kind of monopoly and such a chokehold over the oil market internationally that they could get away with it and they just decided to do it they decided well we just we're just going to do it and this was a huge shock i mean especially for the like the car economy of places like the united states it meant that petrol gas 
you know, became much, much more expensive. You know, it became much, much more, fuel costs went up, you know, it had a huge knock-on effect on industrial production costs. It also meant that workers who were having to pay that much more for the gas in their tanks wanted higher wages to accommodate for it. And it definitely did contribute to this sort of inflation spiral, this situation where prices were going up all across the board. So, way, so workers want, understandably wanted higher wages in order to uh, meet those higher prices, but then companies having to pay higher wages had to put their prices up even more to pay for the higher wages, or they said they did, you know, to maintain profits. And it just kind of go and, and it kind of went on and on. But I think, we, you know, ultimately our job on this podcast is not to determine did the oil price hike cause the recession and the crisis or not it's just to say this is what people were living through and it definitely it definitely sort of brought home to people the extent to which the econ- the industrial economies of places like the uk and the us were ve- had become very vulnerable uh, to this sort of shock and it, and it provoked you know it, it was one of a series of cascading effects which ultimately you know the governments just weren't really able to resolve Absolutely. And um, I mean, this is, I mean, you're reminded what you're, it's really interesting. And what you're reminding me, uh, what you just said, it reminded me that it was a symbol, it was quite a symbolic moment. This, and especially the, this kind of the idea that there, there could be this recession was uh, very striking for uh, the people who are kind of living through this period because it was, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a further puncturing of this kind of, you know, of the, of the post war dream of petrol growth and the promise of broadest capitalism. And young people who were experiencing that, they understood themselves to be the first generation that weren't expecting to probably be as wealthy as their parents were. And this kind of, I would say this in part promoted a sort of artistic sensibility on some sort of level. There was, a, there was this idea that, you know, well, all these things that we're supposed to do are not going to be possible anymore anyway. So we may as well do what we want anyway. And this is what Ned Sablet, um, you know, became a very close a composer who became a very close friend of Arthur Russell's and collaborated with Arthur Russell, described to me of, of kind of this, this particular moment. So I think that's, uh, it fits into the kind of this broader analysis that we're trying to uh, explore uh, in these, these particular episodes of understanding how a kind of, you know, a sort of certain psychology shifted as well around uh, what, the relationship was between you know citizens and the state and the economy and what they could expect of their lives conversely we had i mean you again you're going to probably I almost certainly know more about this than i will but you know inflation became this this kind of key reference point and issue didn't it so milton freeman was arguing that inflation needed to be tackled i, I was looking into this for this chapter that i wrote just the other day about uh, disco and labor disco and work uh, and I was reading a bit more Milton Friedman, and his kind of thing was arguing that you know by tackling inflation, you wouldn't only kind of help the economy, but you would basically help the kind of you know the moral direction of society. Uh, he was saying that uh, there's a quote I think I've got somewhere from this article. Um, yeah, by tackling inflation, the nation would uh, take care of a number of related problems, including, and I quote, Gen- a generalized erosion in public and private manners. Increasingly yes. liberalised attitudes towards sexual yes. activities <laughs> and declining vitality, <laughs> the declining vitality of the Puritan work ethic. This is serious. Tackle inflation, you tackle the problem of sexual liberalisation. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Milton Friedman, who, if anyone doesn't know, is like one of the, the great right-wing economists yeah, who, yeah. Who, who had always hated Keynes and the Keynesian economist and would become a, a, a key advisor to people like Margaret Thatcher. Um, at the time when this was happening, the early 70s, he was. this is the time when he got flown in by the United States to advise General Pinochet's dictatorship in Chile on how to permanently... Uh, demobilize the, um, the the Chilean kind of social movement and labor movement and the left, which mm. scared them so much. So yeah, just incredible. Yeah, they did. That's true. That, that yeah, that's true. I mean, basically, I mean, the thing is, there's a subtext to all of that. And in a way, like what Friedman is saying was was also what like a Marxist would say about that situation, which is because what they meant when they said tackle inflation, they meant cut wages. Mm. that's what they meant right, right, right. they meant you've got to reduce wages like you've got to constrain wage growth that's how you keep down prices and, and that what they meant was you give the working class a good kicking 
they'll they'll learn their place again. You know, they'll stop making all these demands for free time and free stuff and the chance to go to art school and not having to work on a Saturday morning and all this stuff the greedy little bastards have grabbed off us over the past few decades. I mean, that is how they thought of it. And it, you're right. I mean, re- I remember, I mean, Ronald Reagan, for example, when he got elected governor of California in the late 60s, was using much the same language. I mean, basically, what had caused the hippies was the over-generous like, welfare state like produced by the legacy of the New Deal uh, and the Great Society. Of course, the thing is, I think from my perspective, like from a, and from a sort of Marxian perspective, he, w- he was sort of right. Yeah, he was right. <laughs> it, had produ- I mean, it, it had produced those things. It had created the conditions for those things. And they were right from their point of view to want to attack it and destroy it. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, so what, what's what we've got a track lined up that uh, kind of captures this sort of, you know, well, the, the kind of artistic disillusion, if you like, with you know the wider economy, but also what the wider economy had been expecting of, of people. Yeah. So, track from Roxy Music's second album called "In Every Dream Home Heartache," which is a really extraordinary uh, piece of music. I remember. Uh, sort of finding it and playing it to a friend for the first time when we were at sixth form, I think sometimes in the late, sometime in the late eighties. And I remember him being really amazed saying, Oh my God, that could be from 10 years later. Like it sounds like a visage or something, you know, it's like this electronic, this spooky electronic soundtrack with this almost spoken word going over the top of it. Uh, And it's a sort of spoken word lyric, which is about sort of complete disillusion with the consumer culture, which is because, of course, Keen, you know, the Keynesian post-war economy was was fueled by and fueled consumerism. It was basically you know, the, the idea that you had to keep giving people money to spend, and, and giving people money to spend would be the compensation for any for any sort of declining sense of community or any declining sense of personal or social purpose. And while the sort of the the, the kind of leading edge of the counterculture, like we talked about this when we talked about the sixties, the leading edge of the counterculture and the new left and people like. Herbert Marcuse, like from the fifties onwards, had been saying this is all—it's all a bit empty, you know. This kind of consumer culture. But then, what's happening, as you said, in the early seventies is even for people who hadn't really cared about the fact that philosophically it was all a bit empty, or maybe they—they thought it was pretty easy to live in that world. You just had to take some acid and move into a squat and keep claiming the dole, you know. If you were in Notting Hill in nineteen sixty-nine or whatever, though, all those people are now being starting to be faced with the fact that all that is those options are no longer going to be available and so this sort of mood of sort of pessimism which is very which is very new i mean we've already heard it a bit in things like sort of black sabbath like from 1969 onwards but this is i mean what's significant with this i think is roxy music these are kind of art school graduates of your art school they're an art school band of the kind which sort of three of, of not just a previous generation of the previous cohort like five years previously were people like Pink Floyd, and they, they just had nothing to complain about. You know, they were living in paradise, and they were having a great time making this very exploratory kind of spacey music. That we, but now what you've got with this is this real sense of kind of foreboding as well about where this is all going. In every dream home, a heartache And every step I take Takes me further from heaven Is there a heaven? I'd like to think so. But that wasn't the only response. I mean, the only response to this this shifting, this sense of shifting currents, you know, in in the wider culture and the the way the wider polity, the only response wasn't just for people to get kind of moody and pessimistic, was it? There were other things going on. There were other things going on, and one of the main things that was going on in Kind of as a res- as a response to the declining economy, rising inflation, questions being circulated about the future, about morality, and you know all of these things. One of the responses was indeed to um, want to seek out cheap entertainment and be able to listen to music without spending a whole lot of money going out. So you know the rise of the discotheque dance floor. Uh, and, and private parties uh, that were associated with with 
David Mancuso's loft and then successor parties that grew out of that, which I think we're going to start to talk about in the next episode. Um, this was a significant response. Uh, I mean, one thing to kind of say is that, uh, you know, this, this is an age-old response as well to hardship, is to want to lose oneself in forms of pleasure and some might say forgetting. So that practice of uh, going, of wanting to go out, have a good time, and maybe a dance, and all that it was kind of forget about your troubles. You know, this doesn't, this didn't begin in the 1970s, but it certainly was revived in a serious way uh, in the in the early 1970s um, because um, kind of dancing had probably been, as we've already discussed, had been taking something of a backseat in popular culture. But rock culture per se, for example, that we, we have spent some time looking at, I wouldn't sort of say that that was primarily associated with dancing. People might dance to it, but it wasn't like considered to be a dance culture. And we know that by the end of the 1960s, indeed, the whole discotheque movement was kind of, which had grown quite, you know, quite rapidly in the second half of the 1960s in particular, you know, had almost ground to a halt. And so the revival that we, we see in the very early 1970s comes about for all of the reasons, uh, many of them associated with counterculture, deindustrialization, et cetera, that we, we haven't, we, we've already talked about. But around this period, uh, 1973, 74, we see kind of a rise of people wanting to go out dancing because it's a cheap form of entertainment. And there is something about the very nature of DJ culture and, and discotheque culture that is cheap. Uh, instead of having to buy, to pay, and owners, instead of having to pay for, um, a whole lineup of musicians to perform and recoup that money through bar sales and entrance charges. Uh, just have to pay a DJ, uh, who's often considered to be a kind of somewhat lowly and unskilled kind of figure in the first place. So the costs are low. So the cost of entry is pretty low. So going out dancing um, became this kind of significant response to this particular historical moment. And it is indeed during 1974, so really when the effects of the uh, the the oil shock roll roll through into the economy because uh, the recession officially starts, I think, in 1974. This is also the year that disco uh, emerges as a genre. So we can all we can almost kind of link these these kind of two moments. That disco is a is a is partly a response to recessionary times. Um, so we were going <laughs> to. This is almost kind of just a bit of fun, really. Um, but we, we wanted to play a record um, by the Joneses called Love Inflation because these were indeed inflationary times. But all of, you know, in a, all of a sudden we're seeing the idea of inflation kind of, you know, entering into popular culture uh, in the form of, of songs. And um, so, you know, there's inflation in, in the cost of oil, there's inflation in the economy, there's inflation in, in, in wages, but that's starting to come under, you know, some pressure because of inflation elsewhere. Uh, and there's inflation in love. <laughs> so I'm not sure what inflation in love kind of, you know, means. It could be really, it could be a really good thing. I've always taken it to be a good thing. I've always taken it to be a good thing. Love inflation, yes. Price inflation, no, except within carefully determined limits set by an appropriate industrial incomes policy. Anyway, they just by the Joneses. They had a they had an earlier they had this they also had this hit Sugar Pie Guy. Uh, but this Love Inflation is a record that uh, Nikki Siano played at the gallery, uh, which was um, the second venue as we'll go on to talk about. Uh, next week to kind of, you know, imitate uh, or replicate much of David Mancuso's loft, at least in terms of the uh, the entrance policy and um, so on and so forth. So so let's hear uh, the Joneses' love inflation. The same thing is grip of the nation The politicians call it We're making this podcast because we believe that alternative history and radical ideas should be given as much airtime as possible, yet it's increasingly difficult for knowledge of this kind to circulate through the mainstream media or the university sector. 
We love doing it and we're committed to making sure it's available for free to anyone who wants it. But at the end of the day, for us and our producer, Matt, this is what we do for our jobs. This kind of work isn't just a hobby and we've each permanently lost a significant chunk of our regular income due to the pandemic. We won't be able to carry on doing this without some financial support. So if you have the means and you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks. Without music, life would be a mistake. Well, on inflation, I'm thinking just in case anybody like doesn't even know what we're talking about. Yeah, when, I mean, pr- we, it's an economic term and it really refers to price inflation, like prices going up. And one, one way or another, the usual understanding of what causes price inflation is is that too many people want to buy stuff and there's not enough stuff to buy. So prices go up. My understanding of the economic history really is that the reason is that really what was going on in places like Britain at that time is that there hadn't been enough investment in sort of modernising the economy, industrial manufacturing infrastructure for decades. And so the British economy was very unproductive. And so it wasn't producing enough stuff really for people to buy. You'd been given all these wages. But of course... You know that the right wing saw this as an opportunity. They saw this. They the, the right wing account was that you had to basically blame inflation as if inflation was a thing in itself somehow, and that the main cause of inflation was trade unions, like demanding wages, and that became the basis for a kind of right wing account of of the crisis of the British industrial economy that remained really influential for decades. For decades. The fact that the right wing through the press and the media, and to some extent through the collusion of the right wing of the Labour Party, I would say, popularised the idea that what caused the inflationary crisis in the 70s, when you really had really serious inflation. I mean, in both Britain and the States, there were months when inflation was like in double figures. So prices were going up to 10, 12, 15%. Not something you know, that's happened in my adult life. So, we, but the idea was, oh, what was causing this was trade unions. It was called being too greedy in, in asking for wages. There's a whole debate to be had about whether whether unions in, in Britain in particular should have, for example, accepted what was called an incomes policy, where the government sort of sat down with employers and unions and worked out a kind of strategy for managing wage rises, as happened in places like Germany. But we haven't really got time to get into that here. But the point is, I think the thing to really understand for understanding something about the tenor of the times that we're talking about, like this, the the reason why inflation was such a kind of big issue for people. Well, one one reason for that is because, again, a, a really popular account with sort of liberal and conservative uh, economic and social historians and political historians of what had caused the rise of Nazism was that it was a direct response to the inflationary crisis in the Weimar Republic in the 20s. So the idea, I know it's definitely true, there was a massive inflationary crisis. So you would hear the stories about how people would would go to the shop to buy a loaf of bread with a wheelbarrow full of cash, you know, because prices were going up so much. And that was linked in people's minds to the rise of fascism. So there was this real fear around that, well, if you didn't control inflation, then you would get a rise of fascism. And also there was a kind of notable, in Britain, there was a a, a notable rise of the organised far right taking place in the early 70s, which, you know, worried people on the left and the right for various reasons. So it it really was part of the sort of the tone of the times was this growing sense of sort of, you know, the good times being over and the bad times of the 30s maybe coming back and this kind of fear and, and this sort of darkness. And on the one hand, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, disco represented, I mean, it was potentially, it was sort of escapism. It was potentially a way of inhabiting this new world, which was more optimistic, was more about exploring its potential, sort of, sort of you know, liberating people in new ways. But then like the other big response that kind of builds up over the early, into the mid 70s is what would come to be called punk. And punk really, I mean, to explain the emergence of punk, I think you just have to understand this sense of sort of anger by a cohort, not even a distinctive new generation, really, like a specific cohort of younger people who were becoming very acutely conscious that they were not going to enjoy the kind of privileges that 
even really their older brothers and sisters and their older cousins. It wasn't even their parents, really, had enjoyed. You know, you get into the punks like the, in 75, 76, when like the British punks are, are going on about how they hate hippies so much. Who are the hippies they're talking about? Like, they're not their parents. They're people sort of seven years older than them in a lot of cases. And it's in historical retrospect, it's really striking. Like, during that seven year period, you've gone from sort of 1968, which is the high point of the welfare state. Uh, the high point of kind of full employment and the high point of of young people's wages, actually, in in historic terms, to a a moment when it's becoming apparent to people who are sensitive to these changes that all that is going and instead you're in a period of decline. And there's also this sort of, I mean, the sort of the narrative about punk, which like I grew up with, like I grew up, you know, exposed to the, the British music media in the 80s. And there was this conventional story about punk, which of course didn't say, it didn't mention any of this stuff. It just said, oh, punk was a reaction to prog rock and prog rock had been bad for some entirely indeterminate reason that was never really explained. And prog rock's like badness was associated with the fact that, oh, it had these long instrumentals, like as if that, that's like an inherently bad thing. Well, I guess prog rock was a form of inflation, right? Yeah, it was like it was, it was like prog rock was a formula. No, it was. It was like yeah, no, you're right, you're right. It was like triple gatefold albums, like long guitar solos. Like it was all too much. And um, yeah, you're right. And there is a certain. I mean, we'll get into this later in the series, and we well, talk no, about we're going to come back and do pro, like full episodes on punk right as well. But so. there is, yeah, but no, there is. There, I mean, the punk aesthetic is sort of an austerity aesthetic, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's saying, you know, get rid of all that nonsense, like strip it back to the basics, you know. And um, it was like it was role models of rock and roll and kind of and garage, gar- you know, garage garage bands and stuff, wasn't it? Really, indeed. No, exactly. And, and the simplicity of the, the simplicity, the energy that comes out of simplicity. Yeah, exactly. But it's also about this sort of real this sense of anger as well. It was also about this sense of, of, of genuine anger and this sense of not being included in this kind of wonderful post-war settlement that even like the hippies had been in a weird way included in. All right. So one of the uh, I mean, one of the bands that are often cited as sort of proto-punk bands are this New York band called the New York Dolls. And the New York Dolls were a sort of fascinating phenomenon. They were managed by Malcolm McLaren, who would go on to manage and to sort of invent the Sex Pistols uh, when he was living in New York. Uh, McLaren was really influenced by kind of French radical theory kind of coming out of 1968 and the run up to 1968. He was a big fan of the so-called situationist thinkers like Guy Debord, whose main theory was that basically culture had been completely taken over by capitalism in the era of advanced consumerism and television and that the role of art and politics was to somehow puncture the capitalist spectacle although it was it was entirely unclear in Debord like how you could possibly do that to be honest but the, the way in which it was read by kind of people at art school in the early 70s was often that it meant that what you had to do whether as an artist or as a musician was engage in sort of hit and run tactics or stunts of some kind like whether it was like art actions happenings, or, happenings lots of happenings ha- right. yeah well happenings yeah i mean ha- yeah happenings was was one way of thinking about it or that had been although the, you know maybe, happening maybe i'm thinking more about these parties that i ended up writing about in the life and death on the dance floor which i hadn't really addressed properly in the previous two books which were these kind of what i like to call arts punk parties uh, yeah, which the Mud Club and Club Fifty Seven, and a lot of what they did was to kind of critique society through these happenings. And yeah, right. They, right, they were right. indeed drawing on situationist theory. And, uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Directly, I don't know. But. Yeah, no. Well, I think I think you're right, and I don't we, whether it was correct application of the theory or not. You'd have to. You'd, you'd have to. You'd have. Uh, the theory isn't isn't that internally consistent, in my view. So it's quite hard to apply correctly or incorrectly. But McLaren certainly saw himself as engaged in some sort of, you know, stunt-like attack on the capitalist spectacle because he famously, he sort of dressed them up. He dressed the New York Dolls in sort of gorilla outfits, not like big apes. I mean, gorilla with a U. They were supposed to look like, you know, third world revolutionaries, basically, as well as having sort of long hair and makeup. So they were also coming out of the sort of glam aesthetic and their songs were not like revolutionary in content at all. Their songs were just sort of 
you know, celebrations of an aesthetic which is influenced a bit by people like Andy Warhol, I guess, of deliberately trashy, you know, celebrating a kind of life of fairly casual hedonism, but without any of the kind of moral earnestness of the hippies and their relationship to drugs. So this song is maybe the most famous song, "Looking for a Kiss." Just you know, and it's just it's a it's a sort of deliberately almost childlike kind of lyric, which is partly referencing, although not celebrating, like her- heroin culture, when it says, "You know, I ain't coming looking for no fix. I'm just looking for a kiss." But it's supposed to sound kind of a bit dumb, like not clever, like prog rock or jazz rock or acid rock. Even it's supposed to sound like kind of street music for kind of disaffected white youth although they are disaffected white youth who are mostly still at art schools so let's hear it Looking for a kiss. Music, dance, sound systems, counterculture. This is Love is the Message. So um, I think you've got an anecdote about the New York Dolls, haven't you? Well, it's not really even an anecdote, really. But it's a yeah, kind of a... Factoid. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's time for it's a historical... Lack, kind of lack, it's not got enough of a storyline quality for it to be an anecdote for me. <laughs> I mean, I could locate this this piece of information within an anecdote, or even within a wider history, which is what I did actually. So, when I was writing um, the Arthur Russell uh, book, indeed, uh, "Hold On to Your Dreams," um, the New York Dolls kind of make a little appearance in that, and that's because Arthur Russell, of course, was the first uh, was one of an er- the early music directors at the Kitchen. And the kitchen's first location, indeed, it opened in, it could have been 71, 72, maybe 73, but I'm pretty sure it was opened by 72. Uh, anyway, its first location was the Mercer Arts Centre. Um, and the New York Dolls held a four-month residency in what was called the Oscar Wilde Room. And it shared the same corridor as the kitchen. Uh, the New York Dolls were there from June to October 1972. So uh, what's kind of one of the things that's interesting is this uh, art centre backs onto or, or uh, located right next to this, um, or actually was part of that, in fact, now, now I'm thinking about it again a little bit, this cheap hotel called the Broadway Hotel. And it was this hotel when it collapsed in the summer of 1973 led the authorities to start to uh, clamp down a bit more seriously on David's parties at 647 Broadway. Uh, and this was because the loft was located right around the corner from, indeed, the Mercer Art Centre. So, you know, David was kind of, you know, David was, you know, back, back his, his parties were going back to back with the Mercer Street Art Centre and, indeed, the New York Dolls. And it's, in a way, it's just like, uh, so what, you could say. But it's just indicative of these kind of, these, these two responses that we're talking about. One, a sort of punk like was a proto punk response to shifting the shifting kind of social and economic climate, and another, a kind of uh, dance floor response to the shifting social and economic and cultural climate. They were, they were happening at the same time, not only at the same time in the same city, not only in the same city, kind of literally around the corner from each other. So it's kind of, it's helps us also understand the, the energy that was, that was going on and the way that's, in a way, these energies are different. But they are, and they're they're closer than we sometimes assume. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it is partly about people trying to kind of you know respond to the experience of of this sense of of horizons becoming constrained, but to do it, and but to respond to that by sort of concentrating their energy. Yeah, you know, whether it's concentrating it in a three minute pop song or concentrating it like in a dance floor, or sort of a dance record, and it's, I think there is you know it's trying to sort of create a sort of he's trying to create something beautiful and empowering out, out of a an experience which of things degrading in certain yeah, ways. Yeah, absolutely and we look back on these moments and they always seem very set once we look back because they've happened and we you know we try and analyze them and we describe them on 
you know, in words and, you know, occasional photos to support and all the rest of it. Um, but at the time, these were obviously, there was nothing was set at the time. These were, everything was a form of exploration, really. Uh, and it was a relatively unmediated, unknowing culture as well. There was an awful lot to still discover, of course. So these are, these are very improvised cultures. They're not really, they're not named cultures yet. There is disco has not yet started to circulate as a, as a name of a genre. Punk has barely been emerged as a, as a name for what, what the New York Dolls are beginning to do and other, and other bands, of course, not just the New York Dolls. So I guess back to our big old, one of our big themes as well. It's like, well, you know, why, why is this stuff happening at this historical moment? We're sort of saying that. And well, also why New York City? And we're sort of saying that as well. It's a central metropolis. It's, Indeed, it's got this industrial sector that is in decline, and uh, a whole bunch of artists who are part of this new, new emerging, if one of a much better term, well, cultural practice and also economy, are being drawn to these spaces because they're cheap and they're expansive. Uh, and you know, New York is the is the epicenter of this kind of activity. It's an epicenter for DJ culture. It's an epicenter for punk, uh, and and it's a lot of this stuff is happening downtown as well. Yeah, that's right. I think you said something a moment ago that really um, touched a thought for me that, that it comes back to stuff we talked about last time, I think, about how a lot of this is looking for a sort of un- unmediated experience. You know, the dance floor, even though, you know, it's not listening to live music, but there's this kind of is this experience of the immediate co-presence of the dancers with each other and the DJ. And with punk yeah, and proto-punk, it, it's very much about hearing the band live. And kind of breaking down the barriers between the artist and the performer. The idea that there was, you know, one, I mean, really, I mean, the punk critique of uh, sort of big rock, if you like, sort of very prog rock and heavy rock, was partly that it had become about these heroic performers up on a stage, like far away from the audience. And these clubs, like those early punk clubs, are still so sort of venerated in the sort of punk and alternative rock tradition because they were these places where, you know, bands that would become legendary and would influence people all around the world, you know, would be sort of just playing not even really on a proper stage, just kind of on the same level almost as the audience and like right in their faces. Of course, it all becomes really problematic. I'm sure we'll talk about this later. It becomes really problematic once you know, people around the world are copying the punks because they've seen them on the TV, you know, because unless you live in New York or London, you can't go see the New York Dolls or the Ramones or the Sex Pistols. And then it all becomes really complicated and really sort of problematic. But at this moment, these are basically small groups, relatively small communities who are trying to, in their different ways, find some kind of experience which indeed in situationist terms is outside the capitalist spectacle is not mediated by the capitalist spectacle and yet what then yeah what what is emerging are two cultures that will go on to um inform the way that on some level if not capitalism then kind of uh, practices within capitalism will also be reshaped so, you know, as, as we will, you know, to, to kind of state what we were, you know, the obvious that we've kind of mentioned in passing of, or more in the last couple of episodes, but doesn't, we should mention again is that, you know, DJ culture becomes, um, and disco itself, but more DJ culture, I'd say, uh, becomes kind of, you know, uh, an ex- example of a new form of the, one of these new forms of labor that actually becomes kind of uh, important to the post-fordist economy. It's flexible, it's organised around pleasure, it's seeking meaning, it doesn't want to be too structured in terms of nine to five. It's all about being connected, networked, it's creative, it's mobile, it's also precarious. It has the potential to be collective, but often leads can lead to isolation. So, you know, this is, and I, I mean, the obvious thing, I'm, you know, maybe you can speak to this, but you know, punk in its own way does the same thing. DIY, you know, one of the yeah. most important things about punk, you know, we can talk about the sound of punk, but it's the DIY aspect of punk that maybe goes on to be punk's most influential. Yes, yeah, well, that's absolutely right, and all of that is really continuous with the fact that the early seventies is also arguably the high point of a kind of radical anti-work politics in various contexts. So. You know, one of the slogans of 1968, which is sometimes associated with the Situationists, so I, I think that's erroneous. It, it was just a piece of graffiti someone did. Uh, it was ne travail jamais, never work ever. And the sense was, you know, that the feature of the Fordist social contract that people really wanted to break with was indeed the, the fact that you had to work 
in a monotonous job for decades of your life, you know, 40 hours every week, like with four, maybe four weeks off a year, you know, that was, you had to pay that price to participate in this culture and society. And, you know, for a generation of people who'd never gone hungry, that seemed like to many of them, like an intolerable price. But also even for people who were willing to work and were happy to work, you know, there was a growing sense that, well, it was inappropriate and and, and just ineffective in a modern technological society for people just to be sort of drones at work. I mean, one thing that's really interesting to mention, we touched on last time, is that one of the reasons why British kind of industrial manufacturing collapsed, really, was because the British shipping industry failed to modernise and didn't um, adopt container technology. So the shipping all moved to places like Rotterdam. But actually, but in, in the British shipping industry at that time, some of the people arguing most loudly for sort of modernization were, were people from the far left. They were communists and anarcho-syndicalists. And they were also making these arguments for workers to have more control over the, the organization of work processes, not just because they were socialists who wanted to sort of abolish capitalist social relations, but also just on the grounds that, well, that would be more effective. And that, in fact, it's true that, you know, in the Japanese factories that were pioneering what would come to be known as post-Fordist manufacturing techniques, Indeed, workers were given much more autonomy and much more say over the management of processes. They were kind of encouraged to participate in that way. And and all of that is sort of connected to what was going on in Italy with the rise of the kind of uh, workerist and autonomist movements, which both at the level of political organisation in factories and at the level of the kind of theory being developed by people like Antonio Negri, was all based on the idea that, well, you know, the thing about even capitalist industry is it's the workers that have the real power and the real and, and capitalism is all about harnessing the creative energy of the workers. And that really what you want to do, if you want to push things forward into a new phase of sort of post-industrial, highly technologically enabled, automated work, what you need to do is not suppress the workers, but sort of facilitate their creativity and enable their creativity to be facilitated. There's, and that's why, you know, even say, even in relatively conservative Britain, you know, there, there, there's a way, there's a cohort of like young working class trade union activists who are thinking about, you know, what it would like be like to live in a society in which work was less alienated and less compulsory. If people want to see good examples of this, there's, there's this really famous speech given by Jimmy Reed, the great Glaswegian Dockers worker, which, you know, some people will say is like one of the greatest political speeches of the 20th century, where he talks about, you know, how capitalism produces an alienated society and that that's what he wants to get away from. So, so on the one hand, yeah, as you say, there's this way, whether you're talking about, you know, Nicky Siano, you know, wanting to be a new kind of cultural impresario in New York, you know, whether you're talking about Jimmy Reed, the Dockers leader, wanting to, you know, uh, democratize workplaces so they can modernize the shipping industry, you know, which, and so they can move away from capitalist exploitation. In all these different ways, there's this sort of critique on the rejection of of Fordist work, of the, of the inherited forms of work and, and the working lives that have been offered to people in those post-war decades. And yeah, and as you say, I think in, in some ways, you know, club culture, DJ culture, you know, the downtown party scene, it's sort of in New York, it sort of becomes a laboratory, one of the laboratories around the world in which people are experimenting with what it might mean to, to live in those different sort of ways, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that we're going to go on to discuss, you know, quite a bit further down the line, but it's probably a good connection to kind of introduce here, is this is something that capital ends up embracing. Um, So, you know, the tech company of today uh, is almost mandatory to kind of, you know, have some levels of flexibility uh, in your relationship to the office. I mean, not just because of the pandemic either. Um, but you know, you know, the idea is that the employees should be kind of, you know, should be happy. Say so flexibility in terms of often in terms of working hours, uh, certainly in terms of what you're supposed to you're in, you can wear. It's almost discouraged now to wear kind of, uh, you know, formal kind of, you know, attire. Uh, yeah. I, I understand these in these. You go into these offices, you've got lots of opportunities to play table tennis and pool and skateboards everywhere. I mean, maybe this is just a kind of. This probably is a cliche, but I'm, it may be based on some sort of reality. I don't know. I mean, one of the most kind of intriguing things, and I just, you know, if I say this to you, you're going to, you know, maybe you'll want to sort of talk about it in some detail, but maybe we will return to it another time. But, you know, even kind of, you know, in in sort of 
Silicon Valley, you know, employees are basically encouraged to take acid in order to enhance their creativity and find new solutions to business problems or technological problems. So it's amazing the extent to which, you know, we, we need to recognize that these demands of the workers that have more creativity and more meaningful, uh, a more meaningful relationship to their work has been, you know, there has been a response to this, but it's a partial response, but there was an acknowledgement on part of capital that it, that it that needed to happen. So, I mean, sort of rewinding back to, um, you know, this point which we're focusing on a bit more now, which is kind of these early years in the 70s. And this, 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 this week we're on 73 to 75, but although we will be going back again, of course, um, there's just a whole new economy starts to emerge around punk and, and even more actually what comes to be known as disco, because what comes to be known as disco does end up being much more kind of popular in terms of the number of records that are sold than punk, at least during the 1970s. But there's also this whole nighttime culture that emerges and you have this kind of, you know, people working on the door, you know, when they will emerge in in the next year or two, uh, record company promoters who want to sort of get music to the DJs rather than kind of have the DJs come to the office, you know, that basically the promoters end up, will end up taking the music to the DJs. Um, so the, even the working hours of these record promoters starts to shift. And then the, the kind of people who get employed in these jobs starts to shift because they need the companies will rec- recognize that they need to employ people or it makes more sense to employ people who are committed to the culture, a part of the culture, understand the culture, because this is also enables them to, to sell the culture more effectively, etc. And then there's the whole illicit economy of, uh, of dealing, you know, drugs, uh, substances so whether that's kind of selling a bit of hash on the side or selling acid uh, there's just all of the there's a whole array of activity uh, and even sort of new forms of work if you like that start to come in alongside us what becomes an exponential growth in in the nighttime economy so to get to a bit of music anyway um, uh, that kind of captures uh, aspects of again of this kind of moment we thought we I think we, we talked about this during planning and we thought we would play uh, the Supremes' Stone to Love. Um, ostensibly, this is a song about kind of it's an anti, anti-kind of war, pro-peace kind of song. And also the idea was that uh, the writer Kenny Thomas chose this term stone of love to define a kind of uh, an idea of like, you know, unchanging love, uh, stable, permanent love. Somehow or other, I don't quite know, stone love ended up becoming stoned love. In the, in the title and uh and you know these kind of this this you know i can guess how can you yeah. <laughs> so you know there was a whole you know new york djs love this and it was a big record for this trio of really influential uh italian american djs uh, francis grasso and then two of his acolytes michael capello and steve de cristo they met uh well they they all played at the haven during 1970 which was one of these kind of you know Credible early discotheque venues. David Rodriguez, as well, who was kind of one of Nicky Siano's best friends and was kind of a bit more, bit more senior than Nicky Siano, uh, also, you know, loved this. And they loved it because, yeah, they've all spoken pretty openly. Well, actually, I shouldn't say all, but certainly Steve DeQuisto, uh, and to a certain extent, Francis, I think, spoke pretty openly about, indeed, you know, getting, getting high while DJing. Um, so they like to play this record. Stone to Love, and it just captures a, you know, just a shift, again, a sort of shifting, well, a, apart from anything else, it's about, a, it's a form of, it's, you know, for want of a better term, it's a form of consumer expression. This is what DJs do, you work out the records that are going to appeal and why they might appeal, and this had that, that particular resonance to them and their, their dancing crowds. Yeah, I really love that tune. I mean, it's, it's one of those records you have to play to people who still think that whose idea of what disco was is still shaped by images of, you know, John Travolta and people doing cocaine at Studio 54. Yeah. You know, the fact that there was, you know, it was this this matrix of kind of soul and hippie culture was what was producing it more than anything else. 
But then in shifting, in this shift that you've been talking about, the shift towards a kind of new kind of economy, a new kind of ec- economic model um, in the music industry, something that, re- that we've been thinking about since we started this kind of micro series on, on this topic is the fact that you can sort of see the shift from Fordism to post-Fordism to some extent kind of manifest and exemplified in the shift in the centre of gravity and kind of innovative and, and commercially leading soul music from Motown, you know, the label named after, you know, Detroit Motor City, you know, Ford's city, to Sal Soul yeah, as the great Philadelphia yeah, m- music. Well, actually, Sal- is Sal Soul based in Philadelphia? Sal Soul based um, in New York. I know. So, yeah, that's right. So, so Sal Soul, they take, they, they, well, you can talk about the relationship between Philadelphia and Sal Soul. <laughs> sure. Talk about it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, when we were trying to think also about how, how indeed, how to frame this mini series within a series within the entire series <laughs> within the entire podcast, um, yeah, it's it struck it struck us that you know the what was you know the shift from uh, indeed um, Fordism to post Fordism was partly captured by um, this shift from uh, all the all these the practices of these two companies. Uh, embodied by Mo, uh, Motown and Salsol. Uh, Motown's obviously much better known than Salsol. Salsol was this record company set up by Ken Carey and his uh, two brothers. Uh, they were a Sephardic Jewish family. They were actually involved in, the, I think, the lingerie business uh, initially. Uh, then they got uh, somehow or other a distribution deal to distribute uh, a Mexican label that I think was called Americana. And from that, a um, Fania artist, Joe Batan, uh, approached them with a finished album called Sal Sol and asked them if they wanted to buy it. And they did. And that's a, that's a portmanteau synthesis of salsa and soul. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, exactly. So, and Joe Batan uh, was a, uh, you know, a, a fairly well known uh, Latin American artist as well. So, it was kind of, so he was trying to sell this record. He approached the Careys, they turned it into a hit. I think Joe Batan uh, knew Frankie Crocker, this, uh, this influential DJ on WBLS, and that helped to get airplay. And then, so the question for Salsol was, what did they do next? Uh, especially after, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure it was, maybe Columbia brought the rights to uh, that album after it had sold its first 50 or 100,000. And they decided to form this, this label called Salsol, and Ken Carey kind of decided to try and, you know, well, first of all, he came up with this strategy. And the idea was to start, this is 75, this is, well, this is all happening 73 to 75, by the way. The idea was to start a label that produced uh, music that kind of, you know, this, this produced this kind of uh, emerging sound of disco, but gave it a, a salsa flavor, uh, a Latin flavor. Uh, and they were the first label to kind of strategically want to do this. Philadelphia International, uh, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff's hugely influential uh, Philadelphia uh, R&B and soul-oriented label had had some Latin elements and some Latin musicians who were part of their studio. But uh, Ken Carey decided that they wanted to place much, at Salsal, they were going to place more emphasis on the kind of the Latin elements. And then Ken Carey kind of decided, well, you know, so how are we going to make this? And he's, he was, you know, he had actually decided, it's worth kind of noting actually, um, that he, they, as I said, he was running a lingerie business and then just kind of technically just distributing records. And he only decided that he wanted to indeed run a, start running a label called Salsol after he started to go out dancing. The story is that Denise Chapman, who became the promotions employee at Salsol, uh, they'd been going to uptown, up, uptown discotheques. You know, it'd been pretty dull. But then they were introduced one night to Le Jardin, which was the most musically and socially advanced of the public discotheques at that particular point. And they just, you know, they danced all night. And Ken Carey just said, I want to make music that makes me feel like this dance. You know, it was, again, it was like, I, I want to do work. I want to do work that makes me feel good. Yeah, so this is partly where we're at already. Barry Gordy, I'm not trying to say Barry Gordy wanted to make music that people didn't like, but he had a template of, to some, on some sort of level that was about marketing and making money. And Ken Carey came along, and it was an emotional response in a sense. He just went out for a night and just had the most incredible time and said, this is actually what I want to be doing now. 
Uh, and the way they went about doing it is that Ken Carey um, checked all the records that he was most enjoying listening to most around this, this moment where he got inspired by the dance floor. And he noticed that uh, almost all of the musicians were coming from Philadelphia. Uh, there were four in particular who were influential. Vince Montana, uh, who was, you know, this vibes, um, jazz-oriented vibes player. And then the rhythm section of Baker, Harris, and Young, um, who appeared on many of the most influential hits coming out, on songs coming out of Philadelphia International, including, we should say, Love is the Message. Well, how was like a, a, a label in New York City that had no track record, um, no reputation, uh, no catalogue supposed to get the most influential musicians uh, from Philadelphia to, to play for them? And the answer was that Ken Carey went down as, uh, to Philadelphia, as he told me, with his uh, jackets sort of stuffed with money uh, and with cigars and with champagne. Uh, and he took them out. And he gave them what they wanted to give them, and he and he offered and he and he said that you know you record with me, and I'll give you three times the rate, the union rate, I should say. And rather than having to wait five weeks for your check to come through, I'm going to give you the money right here, right now, so you can go away. And uh, and so this was just you know it's not as if this was the beginning of capitalism, right? <laughs> or you know entrepreneurs entering into a kind of competitive relationship. But it can, it does seem to, to, maybe you've got something to say about this, but it captures something about the, about the moment. And it's about sort of commercial specialization as well. I mean, Salso had this very distinctive sound. I mean, Motown did as well, but I don't think there was never this sense that the, the Motown sound was supposed to be as universal as possible. Salso is more distinctive. You know, Salso is like for the dancers. It's for, you know, it's associated with this kind of emergent culture, you know, specific emergent culture of, this goes in the dance floors. This is, you know, just the name itself indicates a degree of specificity. You know, it's salsa plus, you know, it's between salsa and soul. So I think it's it's also in that in that way it really anticipates sort of what would come to be seen as as what was typical of post fordist culture generally, which is this fragmentation of a kind of collective and relatively homogenous culture into lots of specialisms and niches. Uh, which would make the title of the track we're going to hear even more appropriate. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, when Tony Blair would give speeches basically saying post-Fordism is good and everything we've inherited from from Fordism is bad, he would talk about rejecting off the peg, you know, or one, you know, one size fits all solutions. He actually uses that phrase in a speech about why it's good that we're going to sort of, we're going to break up the comprehensive school system. And, uh, and the title of this track, the South Soul Orchestra track is You're Just the Right Size. So, so, I mean, for us today, that's that's like a seminal classic. I mean, all those Salsoul records, this was a seminal. Of course, for, I mean, for some people, uh, for people like, you know, the great critic Nelson George, it sort of marks the, a sort of degeneration of soul and funk into this kind of superficial, erotic, flirtatious celebration of sort of hedonism, you know, which lacks any kind of moral intent. And, and obviously we would generally reject that. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. But also, it does speak to some of the ambivalence about what's going on in this moment. That you know, the, 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 what's going on is we are witnessing a shift to a form of, you know, a future which isn't really what the kind of radicals and bohemians certainly of the early seventies have in mind. You know, what they, what you know, we we know the world we got, and it wasn't the world any of those people were really expecting. And all that speaks to a set of kind of important sort of historical, sort of philosophical questions, really, about, well, what, okay, what really caused all these changes in, in the labour market? What caused all these changes in the nature of work? Was it being caused by the fact that people on the ground, people on the shop floor, people in the factories, people in the universities and art schools wanted a different kind of life and were demanding it and would no longer settle for um, Fordism? And, and above all, kind of women and people who, who were gay and people who weren't, you know, 
who weren't white? Or was it really being caused by a kind of technological revolution, which was enabling first the German and Japanese uh, corporations to modernise their practices, and then was going to enable capitalist corporations and governments allied to them to do all kinds of things they they had always wanted to do, but hadn't really been able to get away with since the 30s, which was lower wages, make people unemployed, uh, and all the rest of it. And I think, you know, we're not going to resolve that here, but I think I think we would say the most useful answer to that question is it's, well, it's sort of both, basically. Both of those things are happening simultaneously. So Antonio Negri, the great Italian Marxist thinker we've mentioned a few times, you know, makes a really strong argument that actually what is driving even the adoption of these new management new management techniques in in corporations later in the decade, what's driving the adoption of all these new technologies by... Um, by capitalist is the resistance of workers. You know, workers don't want to go to work. They don't want to work on assembly lines. They don't want to accept these wages. So capitalists have to adapt. They have to respond. So in a way, that's an optimistic story because it's all coming from below. But you also can't get away from the fact that if you look at what people on the political right, people like Milton Friedman and their friends had wanted to do since the 30s, it was all this. It was all the stuff they would end up doing. So I think you just have to say, ultimately... It's both, isn't it? It's both of those things. It's always both, for sure. Uh, and you're, you're right in terms of the... I mean, you, you know more about this than I do, so I defer to you. Um, but, you know, the, the one thing that I... Uh, you know, that is clearly right is that freedom starts to make these arguments. And, of course, they're drawing on much older kind of theories around economic liberalism and free markets as well, and in, in particular Hayek. Um, so these are, these ideas have been around for a while and they get they get revived. But in terms of the doing, I know that sort of corporations started to kind of, you know, do kind of attend conferences and stage conferences that started to ask questions about how corporate structures could be kind of, you know, uh, reorganized uh, or profitability regained. <coughs> That this stuff, you know, started to happen. I think David Harvey specifies this as sort of starting in 1971 or 1972. Um, if I kind of hear stuff like this, I think, well, yeah, okay, but the doing, what we're talking about, you know, David's Love Saves the Day Party was February 1970, you know, but we, we've gone further back and we've identified, you know, you know, spent some time identifying developments that are unfolding in particular in the second half of the 1960s, that where this was. This was there was a there was a flowering there was a kind of rush of energy uh, of things were changing and I don't you know I'm not really sure that this was that these changes were coming from within the corporate sector I think the corporate sector was quite moribund really I think it had become used to its own success uh, and it was and it was um, it was like one of these ocean tankers that can take quite a while to sort of turn around and adjust the direction and then head off in that new direction and that's. I mean, I might be wrong about this. I might be naive, but I kind of see, no, I think right. I see it a bit more that way. That you know, it was the grassroots that you know responded, uh, that were doing things, that were making demands, and then corporate culture could kind of ended up, you know, understanding the possibilities of this and, and driving it through, and and then taking things much further in a quite a different direction that the, for want of a better term, counterculturalist that we talk about wanted. Yeah, that's my. If I drill down on the a bit of both kind of thing, that's how I see it. But this is, you know, that's my limited historical knowledge. No, I think you're right. I think we should leave it at that. I think we should go out. We should go out on a track from 1975. Uh, Tim mentioned Philadelphia International. Yeah. Yeah, the great uh, Philadelphia soul label that really pioneered all this very lush use of strings, for example, on what were still very danceable records. Yeah, and the early disco beat in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And um, I think we should just—I think we should just go out on this. I think it will be clear from anyone who's listened to the show why this is an appropriate record. <laughs> this is Archie Bell and the Drells. Dance your troubles away. Yeah.